Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast. Your backstage pass to intimate conversations with stars, creators, and industry leaders. On Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the actor and director Jason Alexander. He's best known, of course, for the nine seasons he spent playing George Costanza on Seinfeld. But he's also a Tony-winning stage performer who got his start in the theater and has regularly returned to stage work throughout his career. Now he's got a new theater gig that just opened on Broadway. It's called The Cottage, the new comedy by Sandy Rustin that brings a contemporary perspective to the classic setup of a throwback sex comedy. Alexander directs The Cottage with a cast that includes Will and Grace star Eric McCormick, Saturday Night Live alum Alex Moffat, and stage favorites like Laura Bell Bundy and Lily Cooper. Now Alexander is in the virtual studio with me to tell us about the music in stage comedies, directing on stage while striking on screen, and when and where we might be seeing him play Tevya in the near future. Hey, Jason. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Gordon. So I saw, I was just saying to you that I saw The Cottage uh, uh, a couple days ago, had a great time, and I, I, want, I figured we should start with... Um, before we talk about The Cottage, I felt like we should talk about the fact that it is easy to forget that you have been a theater guy all your life, in part because <laughs> the role you are most associated with is, you know, the one that gets you stopped in the street, the one George Costanza, of course. But you've been a theater guy all your life. You've uh, you were in the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along. Like that doesn't you don't get more theater cred than that. Um, <laughs> and you've been doing it. You don't you never really went away like you you uh, you. Did all, you're doing all your work in Hollywood and you're always, um, you do a lot of stage work in LA and you do work here as well. What yeah. keeps you coming back to it? Um, well, as you say, I never really left it. Mm. It, um, 
I, I grew up in New Jersey. My fantasies when I thought, oh, maybe I'd like to do this uh, for real, were all about trying to get over the river and work in New York and get on these stages. There was no... I, I, when I you know, was in the bathroom with my little toothbrush mm. accepting my award, it was always the Tony. It yeah. wasn't anything else. So, um, I, I, There's something about um, what first drew me to the theater, and it, it's true that this exists, hopefully, in everything you do, but it wasn't the thrill of the spotlight. It wasn't the applause. It wasn't the, that kind of recognition. I was a pretty lonely kid. I didn't have my thing. And so I also didn't have my community. And I was pulled into my first sort of teen theater production when I moved to Livingston, New Jersey. And the first kids that picked me up out of nowhere were the theater kids. And I went to a first rehearsal and suddenly there was community. Mm. Um, There were a bunch of people who seemed to get me and had similar likes and dislikes. And uh, that's what kept me there. That's why I thought I would like to be around people like this for as long as I can. I, I, there is community throughout our business, for sure. But there is something about the immediacy of the real audience and a group of artists, um, both on stage, backstage, behind the scenes, creative artists, who create that magic trick that has to happen spontaneously in the moment. That community has always resonated with me more than than any other and if i'm not with it for any amount of time i just crave it so uh, it has always been about theater it will always be about people who get together to tell stories in real time and um the the change is just am i on stage with them or am i sort of standing back in the wings and, and conducting a little bit yeah yeah is it a thing that you have have had to consciously make time for as you as you as your career progresses, is it a thing? Is it difficult to carve out sort of the blocks of time that you need to work on a show? Um, yes and no. I mm. mean, there were times when I knew exactly how much of a hiatus I would have from mm. uh, pre-planned work and I could slip something in if I needed to. The The real challenge was always, and I, I, we have a couple people in our show who are dealing with this right now. I don't know how you do theater and be a parent at the same time because those schedules yep. are not... They don't overlap very well. You're always going out the door when your kid is coming in the door. So I made a conscious decision with my wife, uh, particularly when Seinfeld ended, about um, whether or not I was going to come back to New York to do theater, which I knew would be a commitment of eight a week for six months to a year at a time. Mm. And my kids were young enough and we we were blessed by having uh, residuals coming in that I didn't need that paycheck. So that's why I got involved with theater in L.A. And I started to step out of the acting role and into other roles. I was an artistic director yeah. and I was a director because I could I could get all the, the juice out of the fruit, but I didn't have to commit the same amount of time. But it's it's mm-hmm. always imp- if I don't do live performing for three, four five months, I, I worry about the muscle just getting slack and I start to miss it. And so it, it, you carve it out. And. The, the truth is, uh, people are so um, sweet uh, slash delusional when they go, how do you pick your roles? How do you do? I go, I don't pick anything. If somebody offers me something, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to take it. Um, so in between, uh, you never know. You, you never, uh, like my friend Lonnie Price and I are talking about mm-hmm. 
doing a production together, a fiddler in Los Angeles like in 2024. And we go, there's probably a half a dozen things that could derail this, but let's shoot for it because it's just something we've always wanted to do. So it's, you, you carve out the time. And Lonnie would direct and you would star. That's the, the that's the yeah. idea, Excellent. yeah. Unless he unless he wants to come up and be my muddle at right. the same time. The <laughs> oldest muddle in the history of the Yeah, yeah. Um, you actually answered my next question, which was when and why you started to get into directing. Was directing on Broadway something that you always kind of wanted to do? Or is this a newer thing? Boy, yeah, if it was, it was in the deep recesses of my head. Yeah. I, I, When I was going to college at Boston University as an actor, mm. I had several professors who went, you sure you don't want to direct it? Because I, I I always tended to look at projects from sort of a big picture perspective. A lot of my professors would say the best actors really have blinders on. They only see the project mm. through the eyes of their character. Um, I was never that kind of an actor. I, I always was looking at it in a bigger way. The, I, the directing thing, I, I started directing when I was in high school because there were opportunities and it was fun to do. I, I have come to um, enjoy it in some ways more than acting most of the time because, you know, admittedly, most of the acting jobs that I've been offered in the last 20 years have a little bit of a similarity. They're all... Um, almost always some variation of George or some outlandish character who is, you know, delusional and ill-behaved. It's not that I don't appreciate those offers or even the doing of those roles. I I only have so many variations of that in me, so I I hate to do the same thing twice. Mm. So the directing thing has just become more compelling to me, The, the opportunity to engage from the beginning with the writer, with the designers, with the actors, with the, with the whole process of, um, uh, uh, to me, it's, it's like doing a puzzle or solving a, you know, solving a mystery. How are we going to do this? How are we going to cut the path? And um, the actor does it from a very narrow perspective and the director does it from a broader perspective. So having done this since I was 14 years old and coming up on 50 years of doing it, um, having more to play with, having more to be engaged with is just more stimulating to me mm-hmm. right now. Um, except that, you know, if anybody listens to this and go, I have a role for him, then by all means, bring it <laughs> on. But, uh, but in the meantime, it's, it, it is more the directing. Yeah. And tell us about how you got involved in the cottage. It's a play that's been done all around the country before this. When and how did you become yeah. aware of it? So I've never seen a production of it. I am aware that several have been done. And in fact, um, Jennifer Werner, who's my associate director, directed one of those productions and has been a huge asset um, because I would always turn to her and go, did you solve this moment? Did you? (laughs) You Um, For a very brief time, I was shopping for a a directing agent and I was chatting with an agency that represented Sandy Mm. And they handed me a bunch of plays that did not have a director attached. And I read The Cottage and I laughed out loud when I was reading it, which, and I'm not an easy laugh. Mm. Um, And I said, this really doesn't have anybody attached to it. And so Sandy and I met and it was really, that was it. She Mm. said, oh my God, I I love your sense of humor. I said, I love your play. We got on beautifully and we just decided to try and do this together. So we we uh, arranged a couple of readings at various places over uh, a few years. Uh, none of them bit. Mm. 
And then there was COVID. Uh, and during COVID, I think Sandy uh, made a relationship with Victoria Lang and Ryan Bogner from Broadway and Beyond. Uh, they became the producers for it. And it was, then it was just theater hunting. I have several mm. projects that are theater hunting. Mm. Um, this one was was got lucky. There was suddenly a slot in a theater that was pretty perfect for it. But it, it is, nobody came looking for me. Um, and I wouldn't have known how to find this, but somebody made a little love match and it, it just took. Yeah. Uh, f- the play is a farce. It's a sort of uh, very consciously sort of throws back to the forms of the old fashioned farce, which is a very precise form. There's a whole lot of timing. Is yeah. that a lot of fun for you to put together on stage with your cast? Um, it is and it isn't. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I have uh, started to say that I've learned on this is making lightweight things is very heavy lifting. Mm. Um, when you're doing another kind of show, you just, all you're thinking about is, am I telling a good story? Am I servicing each moment? Are the intentions correct? Mm. Are the behaviors correct? When you have to add, is it funny? Mm. <laughs> it's easy to make a good choice. It's hard to make a funny choice. Mm. So, that is just an added pressure all the time. And in you're absolutely right. Um, um, I tend to call it more of a spoof than a farce because it mm. doesn't quite have the sort of Fado slamming door right. kind of yeah. frenetic action. But um, there, there is a music to this kind of comedy. There's a beat to it. And there are, um, it, it almost has different movements. And in, if it were an actual musical, it would be mm. very easy to coordinate everybody because we'd all hear the same beat. We'd all hear the same tones. When it's a non-musical musical, you have to find a way to get everybody into the same music at the same time. It takes um, a lot of repetition. It takes a lot of specificity. In many cases, uh, normally what you do in a play is you allow the act- you have an idea and you have you set up a certain playground for the actors and then you let them explore and they find things and you give them feedback and whatnot mm. and there's a process to it. In this, very often we had to give them choreography and just say, you go there when they go there and you do this and you go there, try it on, try it on. That's how it works. Now fill it in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, it's a very, it's a bass backwards process of doing things. It's not particularly fun for actors yeah. um, in, unless they enjoy, we have a lot of musical theater actors. Yeah. So they understand here's the choreography now make it yours. Yeah. And that's what they had to do on this, but it was very exacting. Yeah. And the other thing that we found in the studio, you know, it's funny the first time, if you're lucky, and then you go, it's never funny again. And four weeks in, you go, boy, none of this is funny. I don't think any of this is funny. (laughs) And because I, I, I quote him all the time, I'm pretty sure it was the comedian Dennis Miller, and I just thought it was such a brilliant statement where he said, you know, it's called a sense of humor. Not a science. It's a vague sensibility Mm -hmm. that this might be amusing to somebody. (laughs) And that's what you're sitting with at the end of the rehearsal period going, I think it may be funny or it could just be the biggest goose egg that we've ever laid. And you don't know. And it was a thrilling surprise when we put it in front of our first audience and they started to laugh and we went, oh, thank God. God, we haven't gone too far afield. Yeah. What did you learn about the show that first uh, that first time you saw it in front of an audience? What Were there any surprises? Oh, there's tons of surprises. There are things that we designed and, and imagined would be laughs. Mm. 
But then there were a whole bunch of things that we didn't know would be laughs, that were little subtleties and things that we took for granted as just part of the texture of the play that suddenly there was like a little light shining on them and the audience mm-hmm. would catch it and they'd react to it. Yeah. Um, what I was thrilled about and remain thrilled about, and it was a big concern for me, I'm actually very touched by the play. I'm touched by the journey of the lead actress, uh, yeah. the lead character. And I wasn't sure, because the play wasn't written to be quite as lunatic as I have made it. I have added things on top of the play mm. to make it um, mm. a, a little more whimsical and a little more uh, fantastical and a little more obviously styled and tropey. And, and we weren't sure if we added all that stuff onto it and broke the, the rules of logic and sort of reality would the realer moments and the real emotions and the journey of that character would it still play and people have been very responsive to it and Mm. have commented on it and been touched by it so that was a nice surprise that that i wasn't sure would be uh, sustained by our production yeah and this is a kind of old-fashioned sex comedy kind of re-tinkered and reviewed yeah. through a contemporary lens right but it doesn't yeah. it's not like a it's not like a sex comedy set in in modern day it's very specifically set in yeah. england in the 20s what do you feel like is enlightening about the juxtaposition of like the kind of mores of that time of the setting with the perspective the contemporary perspective that uh you and the writer and all the actors bring to it there's there's many. Uh, first of all, just on the purely feminist side, mm. the, the, the crisis that the main character has is that she owns no property. She has no particular rights. Her fortunes are completely tied to whatever man she can attach herself to. And she finds herself in this play completely unattached to any man in the play. Mm. And to understand that or experience that as any kind of an existential crisis is a very different experience from what I hope, hope most women and most people would be experiencing today. Mm. The whole, what I always find interesting about period pieces and particularly British period pieces are the manners, what is acceptable and what is not, you know, you don't raise your voice. I remember I was learning a a very upper class British accent for a project I was doing Mm. And the dialect teacher said to me, um, you know, in, in this class, you don't emphasize the way Americans do with volume. You know, we don't, mm. you know, Americans get loud. Mm. He said, what Brits do is that's, that's not acceptable behavior. So they use pitch and pitch. They, <laughs> you know? um, and I thought, how fascinating that, that anger um, true grief um uh there was a wonderful story i was just gonna say these things are not acceptable there was a great Mm. story that my teacher larry moss told me it may be apocryphal but um laurence olivier had written uh, an autobiography in which he talked about the struggles he went through with vivian lee and her manic depression and when the book came out his best friend in the world was john gilgood and supposedly john gilgood read the book and said to olivier larry I've read your book. I had no idea. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for not putting your problems on me, dragging me into your crap. Um, I mean, that's the British way. Right. And it is so not 
a contemporary thing. A, a friendships, modern friendships in this country are built on the ability to share your innermost feelings, your problems, um, your struggles. Um, and our bad behaviors are certainly called out. Mm. But you know, it was a different thing to be, I guess, in a way, what we think of as being canceled today was mm. very much the thing back in the day of I, I picked up the wrong spoon or I said the wrong thing at the cotillion and now society has shunned you. It, mm. It's in that sense, it translates very well. But all of these characters are trapped in behaviors. And in watching the old films and watching the old plays, we try to translate as many of those gestures into our show and make fun of them as we could. There's a moment that Laura does that I love where she takes Eric's hand and she's rubbing it all over her face as she's impassionedly, you know, pleading. And there were three or four films of the period where I saw a woman reach out, pull a man's hand away from his body and put her face on it to correct. And I thought that is just nuts. (laughs) We got to do that. I'll have more with Jason right after the break. Hi, this is Andrew Wallenstein with Variety's Strictly Business Podcast. If you love Variety's podcasts, you're going to want to try Variety Intelligence Platform, or VIP. It's a digital subscription tier on Variety.com for industry professionals to dig deeper into analysis and data that helps them be smarter about their business. VIP just launched a great new newsletter and offers more special reports than ever. So visit Variety.com slash VIP save for a 20% discount. And now here's more of my conversation with director and actor Jason Alexander. You were talking about the central character of the show, sort of the character around whom all the folks kind of orbit, and that's played by Laura Bell Bundy. Um, Who, how did you, tell us about how the cast came together. Did you know any of them before you started working on the show? I did know Eric and I did know Laura. Eric mm. has been a friend for 30 years. I directed him in a, in a show back when I was running Reprise. Mm. He was uh, a, a, a gorgeous El Gallo in the Fantastics that I directed. Oh, wow. yeah. um, Eric um, um, is, was, maybe, mm. attached to uh, another play that I'm supposed to direct. Excellent. And we had been doing readings of it for years and just hadn't gotten a theater. And I had uh, another actor attached to this, although when we attached that other actor, there was no theater, no time schedule, no nothing. It was just a sort of a letter of intent thing. Mm. The slot for this production opened up just before Christmas. There was a cancellation of something else that was supposed to go in. Suddenly there was an opening. And they said, but you have to have at least one marquee name. And you, it, they told us on a Monday and they said, and we need to check by Friday or we're going to move on to somebody else. Right. So I called that other actor and I said, here's the slot. And he went, I, I can't do it. I'm not available. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have my marquee name. Eric was the right age, the right look, the right type. I knew he was a theater guy. Mm-hmm. I knew he does comedy. And he checked all the boxes, called him up. And I said, okay, look, I know for the last four years we've been concentrated on this other play, but I've got a slot. And I don't know if you... I said, here's the deal. You got to read it tonight and tell me tomorrow. And you can only do that with a friend. And he yeah. read it that night and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Right. So um, Eric was an easy um, an easy idea to go to. Mm. Um, Laura, I, I had not, well, we, you know, most people in the theater had seen Laura do Legally Blonde. I knew she was brilliant. 
where I got interested in Laura is I knew a lot of her um, video work. She had a, a little series called, I think, Critter, Critter County or something yeah. like that. It was sort of like her own self-produced, self-written hee-haw where she played everybody. <laughs> and so I knew she did a lot of characters and she was very funny. And we were, you know, just going through our heads about, you know, the theater actresses. At one point I talked to Kelly O'Hara. Excuse me, Kelly said, yeah, I, I, you know, it's just not, I, I don't know that that's my thing. Um, and I finally, I, I talked to Sandy Rustin, the writer, and I said, do you know the work of Laura Bobondi? And we both went, I love Laura Bobondi. Mm. And we called Laura and she read it and she said, oh, if you ever get this done, I'd love to do it. So Laura was attached to it for a year or two before mm -hmm. we ever got the theater. Everybody else, with the exception of Alex Moffat, Alex was a great idea from our casting director, Laura Stancic, mm. and, um, and I loved him on SNL, and I said, oh, yeah, that's, that kind of goofball energy would be great. Mm. Um, everybody else's work I kind of knew, but I didn't know them. Lily, I don't know how this happened, Lily came in the door supposedly reading for Deirdre, the little, oh, yeah. the little uh -huh. you know, described as a wisp of a thing, a mouse. A, and, you know, Lily's nine She's feet tall. tall. Yeah. She's a substantial lady. Yeah. And she came in and she very brilliantly said, I'm not a Deirdre, but if you're open for this Marjorie thing. <laughs> and she read Marjorie in the room and we fell in love and cast her. Um, Nahal, we actually cast off a video audition. He was so wonderful. Mm. And Dana came in two times, and I think Deirdre is one of the trickiest roles in the in the play. Um, and she came in for one session, and we worked her again. Yeah. And she came in for another session, and we worked her again. And she was such a, a great little actress and a, a charming, lovely person, and worked her butt off just trying to get the role. Mm. Um, that we all fell in love with her, and thank God we did, because she's delightful in the play. Yeah, yeah. Um. I have heard it said by many people that the closest thing to a theater experience that you can have in a TV gig is doing a multi-camera comedy yeah. filmed in front of a studio audience. Um, I mean, first of all, do you agree with that? Did you find that to be true? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, the, the only thing I had to figure out on Seinfeld, because I was relatively new to that format, yeah. I couldn't figure out. The, the audience is there, but they're about 100 yeah. feet away. Yeah. They're behind the wall of cameras. Right. And I kept thinking, do I try and play this to a camera or do I? And I realized that the cameras were inconsequential to us. Mm. We had marks, but you never, you never had to deal with it like it was a single camera thing. So I said, clearly, this is a live audience thing. Yeah. yeah. But they're all watching the monitors, even though they're <laughs> 100 feet from us. They're all watching on their little screens. So I realized what it was, was do a performance that I would not be embarrassed about in front of a camera but vocally send it to the mm. audience that there, because that's what they were reacting to is what they heard mm. more often than what they saw. So, but yeah, it very much a theatrical situation. Yeah. And so you've got Eric who has all his experience from Will and Grace and other shows and Alex who, you know, filmed it for a live studio audience for seasons and seasons. Did that, do you find yeah. that coming in handy for them in their performance? Absolutely. I, I, listen, Eric is a theater guy. He was a theater guy long before he, found his television success. Yeah. Um, Alex, though, he hasn't done a ton of theater, and this is his Broadway debut. He's a, a improv and sketch guy, so being up in front of an audience is second nature to him. Right. What was, like, as I was referring to before, what was more helpful than all their 
the live experience, even in front of cameras, was Alex has done musical theater, right. uh, Eric has done musical theater, Laura, Dana, Lily, Nahal, they've all done musical theater. That was the biggest help. I, I don't know if I had had actors that didn't understand music, if this would have been nearly as easy or successful a process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there are shenanigans in the show, and the shenanigans are exactly the kind of thing that can go wrong and that actors, uh, yeah. you know, have to make work uh, in the moment. Has that happened yeah. yet in the run? You're... Oh, <laughs> so many times. There is a, uh, I'm giving away a gag, but sure. we have uh, cigarettes come out of many different it's things. A, it's very funny. And there is now, I don't know if it was there when you saw it. Mm. It's a pretty recent addition. A statue of David. Yes, did that, I did see okay. that. That must have been new when I saw it. <laughs> that is very new. And it is a miniature statue of David. And the lighter is actually the penis. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a very tiny little lighter. And it's very difficult to operate. And it generally is challenging. And the ad libs around that, you know, from these things always say they're going to work. They never do, <laughs> you know. Uh, size does matter you know it's been everything we've had um uh lighters have been the bane of everybody's existence there was a yeah. uh there's one where eric lights um uh laura's cigarette with a coffee creamer turned yeah. cigarette lighter and that was always misfunctioning and it happens when he says um that smoking he finds smoking exhausting and she says how so well he would say well first of all this <laughs> you know? sure. um we've had things break we've had things not break we've had yeah. yeah they they have dealt with every situation they even um because we've had trims out and additions yeah. in during previews you know a line gets dropped and they save each other's ass all the time so yeah it's been a lot of mishaps and they're they're God bless funny people. They find a way to make it work and, and you get a laugh on it. And they've also broken each other up on stage and they try to hide it. Mm -hmm. But it, the audience gets in on it and then, you know. That, that did happen the night I was there. It was very Yeah, that's the yeah. thing you walk away with yeah. going, I was there when. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so you mentioned earlier that uh, you as a director kind of added a level, a heightened level of absurdity to the play and sort of comic yeah. things in the play that weren't necessarily there are, is that something like the lighters coming out of every possible place? Like, is that the kind no, of thing you're talking I, about? Like, tell me more. Actually, that was my clue ah. to potentially do more. Mm. Um, you, you know, uh, Sandy and I surprised each other because we had different, slightly different ideas of what this play was. Mm. I read things like that. And the, um, the, the big uh, moment of delivery that L Lily has mm -hmm. and uh, various other little things that were sprinkled throughout the play. And I went, well, that's very spoofy and that's very spoofy right. and that's very spoofy. And then there were, you know, uh, lots of writing in between that were funny and witty and smart, but they weren't spoofy. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a really I felt that tone was inconsistent. And so I started looking for ways based on cinematic tropes and this idea that these characters think of themselves as the platonic ideal of what they represent. Mm. Um, you know, how could I augment that and how could I have fun with that to sort of even out the tone of the play? And that's when I started um, adding things that just aren't there. I, you know, as we were thinking about the cottage itself and it, it's history and who this mama character mm -hmm. that is just a painting, but we hear about her all the time. What would, if she's this, why are there cigarettes and alcohol everywhere? Why, why would this happen? 
And we started to try and root it in, well, very clearly, Mama liked her cigarettes and her husband didn't like it, so she hid them and she liked her drink and right. she hid it. And um, I had the idea of she had a dog that she was crazy about. And so when it died, she taxidermied it and made it into a coffee yep. table. You know, <laughs> um, there were there were things like that all the time. But even um, Eric's entrance with his little bath towel, that yeah, was yeah. something that I went, I think if we can pull this off, the idea that he barely does anything and it works perfectly, mm. almost magically, that will tell the audience what world we're in. Yeah, it's like a tone um, setter, right? For It is, yeah. it uh -huh. is. And so it was things like that that I, I peppered in throughout the show. And then the other challenge of the show, um, and, and particularly challenging for a bunch of the cast, was playing out. Mm. Um, they, I had to try and tell them over and over, you are, you are spoofing a style of acting that came from silent movies where actors believed their faces would tell the story and where there were no microphones. So the only way to hit the back of the theater was to face front and put your voice out there. And you're, you're doing that to a comedic extent. Mm. And it was very alien for some of them. So yeah. the movement, the con there's almost constant movement happening on yeah. the play. Yeah. That was all stuff that we had to figure out and layer on. Yeah. And as you've been hard at work on the cottage, which as I'm talking to you is about to open in just a few days time, um, there have been some pretty major developments in Hollywood lately. Uh, you know, yeah. you are, of course, a member of the Screen Actors Guild, which is on strike along with the Writers Guild. And, the, and the Writers exactly. Guild and the Directors Guild. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm screwed yeah, every that's which right. way, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What has it been like to experience the early days of, I guess, particularly the Screen Actors Strike while you're, um, you know, while you're hard at work on this show? Um, well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, best of times, worst of times. Mm -hmm. I feel very blessed to be engaged with something that can continue outside of the strike because it is it is a different it is a different arena than the strike mm. effects. So that is a blessing. But I also feel like I should be out there with my colleagues um, because I I so stand beside them. You know, I, I'm in the Writers Guild for reasons I don't understand. I think I I added two lines to a script <laughs> one time, but I have. What the writers are, are fighting for is, to me, absolutely essential. Mm. What our actors are, are fighting for is absolutely essential. I do not understand how producers feel that these are unreasonable requests. I, I really don't understand, truly don't understand, why the producers feel that if what they want were to go forward, that they themselves wouldn't be jeopardizing their own futures. Mm. They, they seem to believe that uh, AI is the wave of the future, that they can take an, an actor who's paid for half a day as a background extra and scan their face and put them as background extras in every movie they produce from now until the end of time and never pay them again. They believe that they can generate or rewrite or punch up a script using an AI, which is merely taking stuff that other people have written and mashing it together. But they don't see that right now a kid in his basement can 
duplicate any film any filmic shot they've ever seen, generate a character that doesn't exist, write a script without having to write a word, and has a global portal with which to put it out. And these guys think that studios and streamers are going to be safe mm. 10 years from now? I, I think they are cutting their own throats. And we are all in a creative community. Yes, we, we come at it from different angles and we have different contributions to make. But if producers are not our colleagues, what are they? Mm. And right now they are saying loud and clear, we are not your colleagues. I, I think that is a huge mistake. I am working in a play where my producers have been my colleagues and I appreciate them more than I can say. They have been good friends and great collaborators and real colleagues. I don't know how we get to a point where these issues become so divisive that we have to shut down an industry that was already struggling and lives are going to be ruined. Um, I, I'm, I'm devastated by it. And I have, uh, I open and then I have a couple of days with my family, but then I will be back in LA and I will be on those lines you know, raising a voice to just try and bring some reality and some um, compassion to to the idea that we are all storytellers together. There is there is no element that can be disenfranchised and have the thing as a whole survive. So yeah, yeah. we'll see. You've talked a lot about some of the theater, other future theater projects that you have got kind of irons in the fire going. Uh, I mean, there's there's Tevya next year in Los Angeles, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> what can you tell us about, like, you know, the play that you're working on with the other play that you were working on with Eric? Um, um, my friend Peter Tolan, mm, yeah. uh, who created Rescue Me and, and Larry Sanders, yeah. um, Peter wrote an adaptation of the book. Uh, War of the Roses about that destructive divorce sure. that you know yeah. it is one of the funniest finest most theatrical plays I have been attached to it for six years mm. now um, it is an expensive play because we have to build an absolutely stunning house and, and destroy, then destroy it every it. night yeah um, and uh, it has a cataclysmic ending <laughs> but um, so it, it is a little bit of an expensive project to produce but People have had such wonderful re responses to it mm -hmm. in readings. We have just not been able to get a theater owner to say, yes, let's go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe if Cottage is a success, that may help it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, As an actor, I know I'm supposed to do a new play, um, I think next spring at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Oh, uh, a play called Judgment Day that uh, I'll always say his name wrong. And I, and I love him to death. And in my lifetime, I'll learn to say it. Moritz von Stuhlnagel mm -hmm. is yep. uh, directing good. Yeah. Um, that I'm looking forward to. And so um, there are definitely things on the horizon. And, and um, uh, you know, as a result of the cottage, people are starting to hey, say, hey, would you look at my, would you look at my, would you yeah, read sure. my, would you take a look? And so... Who, who knows where this yeah. goes? Yeah, you have directed musicals before. Are there musicals that you uh, would really love to direct next, or especially on Broadway? Um, there are, but the one that comes to my mind uh, would be, unfortunately, um, and I and I totally understand, and so I hope someone else will do it because mm. I think it's so good. Um, I fell in love as a kid with the musical version of Raisin in the Sun, mm. Raisin. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's a, a terrific piece with a great score and wonderful roles. And we do know the story works very well. Sure. <laughs> so um, uh, I have always, it's boggled my mind that there's never been a significant revival of that show. Um, uh, I always wanted to direct it, but uh, I think that might be inappropriate. So yeah. I'm hoping that uh, Debbie Allen was in the original production. She might oh, be yeah. a, a great director for yeah. it. Kenny Leon, who my, I have Central Park right out my window right. over there. Yeah. Kenny Leon's got Hamlet uh, over yeah, there yeah. all summer. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some wonderful people that I think could do a great job of it. And it's it's such wonderful roles for, uh, you know, four, four or five actors in particular. Um, so that's one. Um, musicals. There are musicals I love. I mean, I actually... Um, uh, I, I have an idea for a Sweeney Todd that I've always wanted to try and do, Great. but I think that may have to wait for a while. <laughs> sure. um, uh, you know, um, I, I, with, uh, I, I did a, um, I directed a, a kind of newly reimagined production of Jason Robert Brown's last five years. Yeah. And I did that at Syracuse stage and it was, um, God bless him for letting me do it the way I imagined. Mm. It was really, really successful. And I love that piece. I would love for that to have a, a life in New York. I'd love that to be seen. Um, but other than that, I'm always looking around. I think for me, revivals are, especially if you're talking about New York and Broadway, mm. what's missing? Mm. What is happening in the zeitgeist that this piece could speak to? What lens can we observe it through that is worth putting it up again? In the case of Fiddler, you know, um, Lonnie and I have actually talked about let's let's go the other way. There's been a lot of monkeying with Fiddler in the last few revivals. Uh -huh. What about if we give it back its veritas and it, its you know its originally intended values and look at it again the way it more or less was intended to be? Um, sometimes that has value if something has been played with for a while. Right. Uh, which is what this current Sweeney Todd does. We've had, you know, actors playing their own instruments. We've had the one downtown with the piano. Yeah. And, uh, and this one has sort of said, what if we look at it again, sort of the way it was intended? So, um, I, you know, I don't know. There's, there, there's many, I'm sure. When I was running reprise, there were yeah. so many in my head. But musicals, you know, I have found... It's, it's really interesting. I, nobody loves Neil Simon stuff more than me. But I understand why most of his plays really wouldn't work again right now. They were such a, 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 a reflection of the time they were written in. The references are so specific. If you didn't know them, the, the humor might be lost. Um, I think musicals are like that, too. Uh, they are, there's a timing to them. There's a sensibility. I think having brought Parade back now when they did was such a brilliant idea because it's the rise of, of anti-Semitism and, and just sort of race hate in general has, has been back, uh, unfortunately. So it's finding the right thing for the right time. And uh, I'd have to rack my brain. But we are talking about a couple of play revivals that could be really fun right. that I, uh, since we haven't even approached a rights thing yet, I won't mention. Uh, but excellent. But that's, that's the other thing is when looking at New York, what isn't it doing mm. that an audience might respond to? What would be fun or exciting or engaging or important or valuable? You know, there's a lot of, you spend a lot of money to open a Broadway show, so yeah. it, it wants to check some of those boxes. Yeah, yeah.
Well, we look forward to seeing your next New York project and to seeing the thanks. two projects you've got in the works uh, next year already around the country. Um, thanks yeah. so much for your time, Jason. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure, Gordon. Nice to talk to you. That was Jason Alexander, the director of The Cottage, now playing on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theatre. If you enjoyed this conversation and others we've had here on StageCraft, I'd be so grateful if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes and subscribe at all the places you get your pods, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Twitter at Gordon B. Cox. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.